0: text is from Mark 12, 18 through 27. Please follow along as my dad reads the passage aloud for us. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken.
1: This is God's Word. Good morning, church. Um, My name is Toby Grunick. I'm the leadership care and support minister, pastor, not minister anymore. Um, Gosh, my time moves on. Um, Here on staff, and I'm excited to be here on this Father's Day with you all. Um, I forgot to pray in the first service, so I get to pray now. First service, forgive me, but I'll be praying. God. we thank you for this day, and we thank you for what's ahead. Thank you for your invitation, um, that the invitation to dive into the, your word, to your scriptures is new every morning, and that you, um, yeah, that you have ongoing invitations for us. So we we'll take that invitation today. Would you open our hearts and our ears? Would you take what I've prepared as a, a meditation of my heart and make you what make uh, a lot more sense out of it than, than what I'm trying to do, Jesus? Thank you that you just make sense. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I wanted to start out of time by thanking Jason for reading this passage this morning, so I didn't have to. Um, because in some ways, this passage is kind of an interesting, awkward, silly text, right? I mean, think about it. There's seven guys who get married to one woman, and they die one after another, which is weird, right? We're Like, why do you keep marrying the same woman if that happens to you? And then it talks about sex in heaven or the afterlife, and, and then Jesus in there, all of this. It's just, it's, it's silly. Right? I feel like, in a way, we're looking at a text um, that could be out of a comedy sketch uh, made up by a, uh, not a group of religious leaders, but a group of comedians um, who have their, their stage present as bringing up silly things. Uh, I was kind of almost thinking of this th- these, these, these category of jokes where it talks about like uh, an imam, a rabbi, and a priest walk into a bar. Right, It's like comical like that. It's silly in a way. Right. Um, now, before I carry you too far away in the silliness um, part of it, um, I think we all kind of got wind that there is, that there is a purpose to all this. These guys don't seem like the type of guys who just come to have a pleasantly fun conversations about theology just for the heck of it and to make things look silly. There's a point to it, right? And now, there is a point to it in one way, but we also see that there's a point to it to Jesus because he responds to them. Now, Jesus doesn't just respond to them in a way where he's laughing with them or thinking, oh, this is a good joke and highlights that. That's not what tr- Mark is trying to do here. He doesn't answer them with a, like a counter question or he doesn't answer them uh, figuratively. Um, no, he actually has a straight response to them, right? He, he actually answers their, their question, um, which I think is fascinating because it is often something that we don't always get from Jesus, now, in, in Scripture, but also in personal life, I think life would be a lot easier if we would just get straight answers, right? Um, if, if Jesus would just tell us the exact same thing that's happening or what's coming up next, um, or our spouse or our coworker, or our boss would just give us straight answers, life would be a lot easier, right? Now, why does Jesus give them a straight answer? Why why is he giving the straight answer? But not just the question, why is he giving up the straight answer or why does he answer the question? But why does he have these words that you're an error or you're badly mistaken in there? There's something serious to this. Jesus is taking this serious. So the question that, we, that begs to ask them is, Jesus, why are you so serious? This is silly. This is comedy, right? Well, not really. You see, the reason for uh, the seriousness of this question is answered in who the Sadducees are, and what they were trying to do. Now, um, to kind of draw a little bit of a picture, mental picture of who these Sadducees are, um, the first thing you gotta know is that they're kind of like your, your modern-day G7. Uh, they're a group of just elite, um, high-ranking people, a very exclusive group who um, were who uh, in authority and in power, not just in Jerusalem, but also in the temple. They consisted of a lot of really, really wealthy people as well as uh, members of the high priestly family. So these were really educated people. These were not just dumb people who wanted to have a silly conversation. There are some seriousness to this. And I think that's why Jesus is taking them so serious. Now, the other thing we need to know about the Sadducees is that they were traditionalists. They were kind of like the, their, their day conservatists. They were very um, um, they were not really open to changes in their stances. They kind of made their, like, this is what we believe um, and our viewpoint interpretation of Scripture is, and there is no margin to move away from any of this. Um, and so we see that in the way of, of what they believe in. The text tells us that one thing that they believe or do not believe in is in the resurrection. And the second part that we, um, we know through history uh, is that they, didn't, uh, they only believed in the five books of Moses. So there is no prophets or wisdom Literature, it was only the five books of Moses. And that they had to be taken literally. There was no way to, just to look at this as narrative or figuratively. It had to be taken literal. Now, um, Deuteronomy 25.5 is one of the passages that they believed in as their authority of Scripture. And that they wanted to take literally. And in this, in this law, is one of the laws of Moses where he commands that if a brother dies... His brother has to marry the widow in order to um, continue the bloodline. It was very, very important to these people. Um, you see, the seriousness for them laid in there that they were actually really serious about Scripture, really serious about the Bible. And this was something that their, their Bible, they seemed, they seemed to be really clear out of their Bible. Or because it wasn't talking about it, you see, that the five books of Moses actually never state that there is a resurrection. They were challenging other people on this belief because they couldn't prove it to them. There was no way to prove to these people that what they were saying, what they're believing is wrong. And they were so strongly and adamant about, about this that they would go around and challenge everybody about their beliefs. That they couldn't be answered otherwise than what they believed in. And I believe that is the reason why Jesus is taking the Sadducees serious. They are taking the word of God serious, they are taking their understanding of the word of God serious, and so Jesus takes it serious too. Now um, the question that this begs for us today is is this question. Is there any validity in the question that they have, right? We see their seriousness, we see that their silliness in how they approach the text. Um, we see with our modern understanding that we've, we've kind of seen events that led us to believe the counter-believe. That's why we're here, most of us. It's because we believe in a resurrection. We believe in that, that things are actually happened and that Jesus' words are true. So the question is, is there any validity in their question? And to that, I would answer yes. But the way I want to say a yes to this question is by rephrasing it. And I want to take this rephrase question that will lead us through our text this morning and through our passage this morning, I want to bring it to this text and see how it answers our question, okay? So here's the question that I want to ask, that I want us to ask this morning to the text and to Jesus. If the resurrection is true and we are resurrected, what are we being resurrected to? If the resurrection is true and we are really resurrected, what are we being resurrected to? And I'm going to be jumping around a little bit and answering um, different aspects of the question, but I want to start out with this. If the resurrection is true, what version of myself is being resurrected? And I don't know about you, but, but I've asked myself that question. Uh, specifically when I ponder Jesus' resurrected body and the disciples engaging with it. In, in John 20, uh, we encounter the doubting Thomas. I think we've all heard about the doubting Thomas because most of us go to church on Easter, and that's typically something in the Easter passage of resurrection. Um, now Thomas hears that the other disciples have seen Jesus, um, and and he is kind of taking the point point saying, "I don't believe that. You can tell me whatever you want, but I don't believe that there is a resurrected Jesus. And why is that so? Because resurrection is weird. That's not a thing. People don't get resurrected from the dead." Um, And and though there's a hope and an expectation that people at that time had in a resurrection, that it actually happened was just, was an event that, that they thought never would occur to them. Now, with his skepticism, he's met by Jesus in this text. So let me read the text to you from John 20. Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Unless I get proof, physical proof, that he's here, I will not believe. Now, Jesus uh, understands this, and he, he gives him a week in his doubt. says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Um, and then the text says, though the doors were locked, Jesus showed up, which is a very interesting part about the resurrection. Uh, um, locked doors don't mean anything to resurrected people anymore. Um, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. My shalom is with you. And then he said to Thomas, come, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my sight. Stop doubting and believe. Now, this is a powerful text, a powerful text in the context of, resu- uh, of, of the resurrection. And it, it kind of validates my question again, right? If Jesus bores the mark of his, resurrect- uh, of his death on his resurrected body, Right? If there are still the marks in his side and of his crucifixion, though he's in, a, in his resurrected body, what will happen to my body in the resurrection? Will I have marks? Will there be marks of death? Will there be marks of pain? Will there be reminders of suffering from the world on me when I'm being resurrected? And then the question, the other question is, what will will I be resurrected in my best shaped body? Or will it be this old version of myself? You see, uh, one of your own prophets, science guy, Bill Nye, (laughs) actually uses this as an argument against the belief in a resurrection. In a video on the YouTube channel called Big Think, he argues against the life after death like this. It would be a fine thing if I would have the capabilities, athletically, that I had when I was in my mid-20s, with the life experience and intellect that I would have right now. That would be fantastic. And then life forever, of course, bring it on. But we have examples of people getting old and their body and their mind failing and fading all around us. So watching ourselves die is to me the overwhelming evidence that there is no life after death. There's certainly no reason to think that when you die, you become your optimum self. But if it turns out that this is true, to become your optimal self, cool. But what would you do differently? Would you just go on? Wouldn't you just go on, and end this life at a certain point to enter life in the optimal self? You see, for Bill Nye, the resurrection can't be possible because we would just be raised in a fragile old self, and there is no evidence that it will be our optimal self. So why resurrection? Why not just keep it with the Sadducees and saying? There is no resurrection, life ends, and our body and our our soul dies. Now, this kind of goes back to to my my, uh, leading question, right? Um, If the resurrection is true, this is the if part, if the resurrection is true, then will our body and our our soul not just simply die and we're gone? And even though there might not be a life um, after the resurrection, uh, that's how some people think and live their life. We still live a life. We're still on this earth. And there are many ways to live life. I think one of the more popular ways to live life without the belief in the resurrection of afterlife is that of, uh, of uh, life with the belief of nihilism. Or one of the responses within nihilism, uh, existentialism or absurdism. Now, in these responses, the meaning of life is... There is no meaning of life. There is no other thing, no outside force, nothing that really dictates to me the meaning of life. Therefore, there is no meaning. Nothing has meaning. And some of these responses also tangled in with the, the meaning of life comes from what I do. It kind of is shielding off from the, the value system or institutions outside that are trying to tell you what the meaning of life should be for you. And so you, you just get to develop your own meaning of life or life gives you meaning by what you end up doing or who you end up becoming. And I think that is a very typical human experience a lot of times. I feel like um, we get into these circles of life where you just feel like you can't really break out of that. I certainly experience that a lot of times um, with my kids. I have two young kids. I have a two-year-old daughter and a four-year-old son, and I love them most of the time. And then there's times, these cycles that we get ourselves into is, why are we we having kids? Why is it a thing? And then why in San Francisco? Like, do I really just want to drain my bank account? And then do I really want to just use up all my physical and emotional energy by 8 o'clock in the morning? looking forward to dropping them off at daycare so I can show up at work, be myself at work, and then work throughout the day, somehow make it through to just pick them up again, drain more of my emotional energy, and just trying to make it to sleep. A circle of life that we just catch ourselves into where we just think, wow, is this the meaning? Is this the meaning? And it's a circle that is hard to break through. It's a circle that's hard to break through. But once you find some sort of meaning that helps you break through that, it gives you meaning and it gives you purpose. I think one of the ways that we break through the cycle is by focusing on materialism. We actually become... Um, we, be, we, we are focused on what, what we have or, we, or what we desire. And this is an old question, um, actually, the, um, the Solomon in, in, the, in the Ecclesiastes, he talks about kind of like the meaningless of life and these, these circles for, for a long time. Uh, or in the beginning, he says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And then he kind of talks about the meaningless of life. And, and he, he tries to break the cycle by saying this So I command the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and to drink and be glad. That could be a meaningful cycle of life. And then you will join, um, then you will accompany them in their toil, then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of life that God has given them under the sun. So this kind of capsulates, one of the answers to the circle of life is by by just enjoying the materialistical things that we have in life. We find meaning in life through our stuff or the stuff that we don't have yet, but that we really want. We find meaning in life and break through cycles by, uh, by life experiences, by breaking things up. And, and those life experiences hopefully break our or change our life forever. That's the hope. And that's what defines us. That's what gives us hope. That's what spurs us on. That's what gives us energy. Last year, um, I made the decision to join the electric bike club. Um, I don't know if anybody else has made that decision. Um, I researched for quite some while which bike is the best fitting for me. And um, I found kind of a cycle to break, I found something to break through the cycle of mundane, modernism of life, right? Where it's just nine to five, you do the same things over. By, by getting myself into this, into this uh, place where I want, the bike that I wanted was, um, was just released and I was quoted about four months to get the bike. But I was like, I, I just want this bike so bad. And so, for the next four months, actually, that time was extended to six months because, you know, shortage of everything and nobody wants to uh, drive boats anymore and shipping was all hard. So, six months, I had this thing that I focused on in my life. I had something that helped me through the cycle by just looking daily on my status updates on my phone of when is my bike finally done. It's been in, in production for this long, pre-production for this long. But you just get yourself to this point, and, and the days were, I don't think they're, they've ever been shorter than in the time of me waiting for this bike. And then, and then you have it, and then you have this 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 sense of fulfillment for a little bit, right? It's like, oh, I have it, I have my status now, I get to ride around San Francisco, I don't have to be the, this... Uh, this driver, this car driver anymore, I actually get to be, do something nice for the environment. I'll be driving my bike from my home to work every day, and I contribute towards the health of, the, of this, uh, of this con- continent, of this world. And this, this cycle breaks just for a little bit, but we find ourselves being back to it, right? And then it's just, then we're just trying to find the next thing. Maybe there's something else in this bike that I can do or with this bike. Maybe join a writing club where I can just start writing with other people and find the joy and meaning of life in this again. But we find ourselves in these cycles of life, bicycles of life, cycles of life. That joke right there. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> um, but we find ourselves in the cycles of life of how do I get more wealth? Maybe more wealth will help me um, break through these things. Equity investment strategies? Can I self-improve my own life? What's the next car that I can get or home to be living in? Or what are the next destinations that are really going to just shake up my life and I get meaning just for at least a little bit in my life? And so we go on and on and on and we go in cycles. But we find ourselves thirsting and hungering for just something more. There has to be something more that's satisfying, that not just a thing. There's something more. It's got to be something more to life. And then we read Jesus' answer in this text. And what does he say? Are you not in error? Are you not in error about your understanding of life because you do not know scripture or the power of God? He says you're getting it all wrong. You think your scripture doesn't talk about resurrection, but it actually does. Nobody gives you the answer, and they were actually impressed with his answer afterwards. Nobody gives you the answer, but it's right there. I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. Now, this is your theological proof. This is me proving you through scripture that you're wrong, that there's a resurrection. But here's the more important part. You actually have no understanding of what the power of God is. You don't know what God is capable of doing. And I know thinking this mindset, thinking towards that, will take faith. And so much of our life takes faith. But it is, it, is a, it is a hopeful expectation, a hopeful faith, that God is capable of more. Let me get to kind of my leading question and move into the next part um, of, of this sermon by, by um by focusing on another part of, the, of this question. So the question was, if the resurrection is true, if we are really resurrected, and now this is the part I want to focus on next, is what are we, what are we resurrected to? Now, if you grew up uh, in church like me, you um, at some point have, uh, must have heard that there is a resurrection, that there's eternal life with God, and that at some point you had to kind of accept that in hope and faith that this is true. It's never, really like, it's never really been shown a, a lot of crazy amount of uh, um, um, arguments for you to, con- to really convince you. It's, it's, it's kind of a step out faith that we do. And, and even our text, Jesus isn't really clarifying of how the resurrection happens, right? Did you notice that? He only says it will happen. He will assume it will happen. But he doesn't say how the power of God is at work. Now, there is this belief that's gone around the church that's kind of in here that is best summed up in this quote by Billy Graham. Now, before I say a Billy Graham uh, quote, there is no intent for me to make him look bad because I don't think Billy Graham intended any specific theological statement when he makes here. I think he was really just expressing the hopeful expectations that we all have in our lives. So don't read this as a criticism on Billy Graham. I think this was a sentence that was used by a lot of Christian culture for us growing up to hone in a specific point that I want to remind us of this morning. But here's the quote. Here's what Billy Graham said. He said, My home is in heaven. I am just passing through this world. My home is in heaven. I am just passing through this world. Now, I think there is a problem that comes with this view. I think it's it's problematic to view the the power of God in this way, that I am just passing through, but that home is actually in heaven. Um, Again, I mentioned that I grew up in church. I don't know if any of you did as well. If you did, you probably remember this book series called Left Behind. Uh, Yeah, anybody read that before too? Anybody else taken probably the theological freedom of just drawing out some theological conclusion for yourself out of this book. I'm definitely guilty of that. Maybe one or two of you out there, too, or maybe not. Um, now, I do believe that these books serve a purpose. First of all, I think they're very, very interestingly uh, interesting Christian novels that are, uh, that are engaging, that are, that are entertaining. But also, uh, in preparation for this, read some book reviews of people who reviewed these books again, and they said, uh, this actually helped me to be a better Christian. This actually uh, affirmed my walk with Jesus a lot more. And, and I think there is a, a, a good uh, purpose that these books serve. Now, uh, for those who didn't grow up in church or have never seen this book, um, so which is totally fine, um, let me give you a quick recap. So, Left Behind, this book cover actually um, is one out of 16 books. So, if you made it through all 16, you, 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 know, you read your Bible in the year. Um, and then it was actually adapted into a movie. It was first staring at uh, Kirk Cameron, and then later on, for some reason, somehow, they got uh, Nicolas Cage to play in these movies. Um, if you want to read something entertaining, um, read the Rotten Tomato reviews of, on this movie. It is uh, fascinating. Um, but, but as entertaining as this, as this might be, I, I, I just know that there is a certain belief that has seeped through the church, that is sitting within the church still, that affects our view and our belief of the resurrection. And that is that we, that we are just escaping earth. That must be the power of God, that he takes us out of this world, that we don't have to stay here, that he takes us out of earth so that we can be with him in heaven, right? And so the first thing our resurrected body then sees is something like this. Left behind, no there we see the gates of heaven. We've made it out of this world, and we've made it to this other place that was promised to us. Now, in this view, um, the power of God was that he is building us something better. He's building us heaven. And that, um, that we will have to go somewhere else because earth just becomes a placeholder, a placeholder for people. We're just being born into here to ultimately make it somewhere else. And with that life, uh, the meaning of life, more comes like to the point that you have to prove yourself more. And while we get to enjoy the beauty of the world, we also experience the hardships and the pain and the suffering. But I also believe that this, this understanding that's based in some of our, um, in our theology must lead the Christian to a life of excuse. We have to live, if we view the power of God as an a escape from earth, we have to view this, this earth as there is no purpose on this earth. Living life on earth boils down to just following a personal set of rules that a God or the universe put out there so that we can make it to this next place. And there is no connection to the earth. And with that it actually excuses us from any responsibility in this world. Things like climate change become a political hoax. Homelessness is just a temporary uh, issue. um, And why even doing anything about it? Because God will take care of them. If not in this life, then he will certainly certainly have compassion to them and bring them to heaven. I am not responsible for anything that's going on in this world. But why then would God call us to be stewards of this world and bring us into a partnership with Him to bring aspects of heaven to this world? Right? We say that always in, in as if as it is in heaven. On this, earth, on this earth as it is in heaven. Now thinking that this escapism, that we're just escaping earth to be in heaven, is the display of, of the power of God. Is, it's just it's not biblical. And it reduces the real power of God. You see, the Bible always talks about heaven as a temporary place where God's will is perfectly accomplished until another event happens. So then what is the power of God? Now here's a broad description that you can kind of say, this I think encapsulates biblically the power of God. The power of God is his ability to redeem or transcend anything that we could ever imagine. Now, as we saw earlier and in our text, God's power was displayed in Jesus' resurrection. Jesus Christ died on this earth, and no one ever thought that he'd be raised from the dead. That was not a possibility. But then hundreds of eyewitnesses testified. Because they actually saw the resurrected Jesus in a resurrected body. Though there was kind of always a hope for people, for mankind, for resurrection, the fact that it happened was just plainly uh, astonishing. And you see that in Thomas's response, right? He couldn't believe it. He heard that this was a possibility, but he couldn't believe it until he actually got proof of it. And now... With, with him and with his resurrection and the community of, 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 of the resurrected Messiah that we've joined, um, we live now in this expectancy of our own resurrection. Because what Jesus did on the cross is he defeated death, he conquered death, and this, this also answers our questions, question earlier about the marks in our own body. Because what Jesus did on the cross was bearing our pain and our suffering and our marks of this life. He took that all upon himself and therefore we don't have to carry on any of that. Because he has and he will carry all of that. You see, Jesus redeems it all. Everything is redeemed. And so in this redemption story, in this redemption understanding of scripture, 1 Corinthians, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 describes our resurrected body like this. He says, So will it be with the resurrection um, of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, so a body that goes into the ground at our death is perishable, but it's being raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It is sown in natural body, and it's raised a spiritual body. And now through him we are able to join in on the experience and the hope of a resurrection and of a resurrected life and an eternally and restored body. And in that, I believe, lies the hope and faith of a resurrection. But that isn't all about the power of God. There's another aspect to the power of God that we learn from Scripture. You see, if you read Scripture, you never see God abandoning his projects. God is never about abandonment. God's plan of redemption is not to take us out of this world, but to redeem the world. He's always about redemption. God's intent for humanity, since he created us, was for us to Rule the world. We see that in the garden. He says, rule this world. Rule this, the, the, the things that I've created. Be stewards of it. And that is what he still has for us about over this world today. He still tells us, steward it. Now the problem is that um, ruling or stewarding has become quite hard because as Hebrews 2.15 tells it, that humanity is held in slavery By the fear of death. Death is still holding a grip on us. And therefore we can't um, become this full-flourished version of ourselves. But as we know that death does not have the final call in all of this. We get to experience life in a fully redeemed and fully restored earth. You see, because God is never just about abandoning this stuff. Abandoning the world, his creation. He's always about the renewing and restoring and redeeming of all things. And that's why he sent Jesus. Now back to our text. There's a little downer in this text. And the downer is this. There is no marriage as we know it. Now I know for some people that's also hope. Great. There is no marriage in the resurrection. So why doing this all? Because here's the interesting part. Though there is no, no, um, no marriage as we understand it, there is a different marriage that's happening. And that is the marriage of heaven and earth. You see, the book of Revelation, uh, this is what the Apostle John writes about the marriage of heaven and earth. He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. There's no more temple, and he will dwell with them. He'll be among us, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from it, from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. The power of God is displayed in the resurrection of His people and the renewal of the world and the restoration of His order that He always intended for this world. No more death, no more crying, no more pain. Now these last two chapters of Revelation are actually really, really beautiful, a really good way to reflect on our own life after death or the future that's to come. And it is a, it is a wonderful way to read about this marriage of heaven and earth, and this place that we will dwell in with God forever. And he writes um, comments really really beautiful on this passage um, in his book called Surprised by Hope, which I highly recommend, um, and also a beautiful book title for a book on resurrection. Here's what he says: We thus arrive at the last and perhaps the greatest image of new creation in the whole. Bible. The scene set on Revelation 21 through 22 is not well enough known or pondered. This time, the image is that of a marriage. The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And we notice right away how drastically different this is from all of those would-be Christian scenarios in which the end of the story is the Christian going off to heaven as a soul, naked and unadorned, To meet its maker in fear and trembling. As in Philippians 3, it is not we who go to heaven. It is heaven that comes to earth. Indeed, it is the church itself, the heavenly Jerusalem, that comes down to earth. Now in this resurrection that we're talking about, we will not go to heaven. Heaven will come to earth in form of a city. And in the city we will be dwelling in, yes but we're also helping shaping it and forming it with the gifts and talents that we have. And we'll be stewarding it like God always intended for us to do over the garden. John tells us that this new city doesn't have a temple because God will actually dwell amongst us. He will be in our midst. And in that, our desires and intimacy are actually being fulfilled. And all evil will be eliminated and this earth will be restored to its absolute beauty. And though we are hopeful in this expectation of this day and our resurrection, it kind of gives us this perspective of I'm just still waiting for that. I'm only waiting for that, right? But I think, and or Wright brings Prince has a quote in there, I think there's more to life than just waiting for something. There's more to life than just seeing the merger happening at some point. And here's what N.T. Wright says, and I want to close out with this quote. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project not to snatch people away from the earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's prayer is all about. We are renewed. We are transformed through Jesus' work on the cross. And because we want to see the merge of heaven and earth happening, we're joining in with his renewal work until his full redemption is happening. And I believe that is the power of God displayed in resurrection. And this gives us hope that fuels our faith, hope that keeps us going.